So far in this series, we've seen how people have been messy. Their lives have become a mess. Uh, And generally, it's when someone does something. They do something or they fail to do something, and it leads to a mess in their life. And we look at it and we say, well, yeah, that's, that's a natural consequence. And we would expect your life to be messy because you did X, Y, and Z. Uh, We see it, it's there, it's a mess. But today, the the question that we're going to focus on is, can our life be a mess when everything seems to be going right? When everything seems to be falling into place? Can our life be a mess when we would describe our life as great? As fantastic. Can our life be a mess when we would look and we say, you know what, I am so content in life right now and I'm so filled with joy every day. Can we be a mess in that situation? And to answer that question, we're going to look at the book of Judges as we've done the last couple of weeks and we're going to look at chapter 6 through 8. We're going to be looking at selected verses Last week we looked at how Deborah and Barak and Jael delivered God's people and after that generation died, uh, the Israelites sin again. And so God sells them, he gives them over into the hands of the Midianites following the cycle in the book of Judges. And so they sin, they get handed over to slavery, they're going to cry out for deliverance, God's going to send a deliverer, And then he's going to bring peace. And that deliverer is going to be Gideon. This captivity is worse than the the ones before. This is a very low point for the Israelites. They can't even live in their homes anymore. They're hiding in, in the cliffs. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding in wine presses. They won't just walk out because the Midianites are terrorizing them. It's a very low point for Israel. And it's in this low point that the angel of the Lord comes and says to Gideon, you're up. It's time for deliverance. Here's what we're told. Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. He couldn't even thresh his wheat out in public because the Midianites would come and take it, bully him around. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and said, you're up. It's time to save Israel. Go, mighty warrior. And if you were to pick a hero, if I were to pick a hero, Gideon, (laughs) he wouldn't be him. 
Uh, he self-proclaimed, I am the, uh, from the least clan in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. In other words, I'm the weakest of the weak. Nobody would pick me. If you want an example, if you've seen the Marvel movies, Captain America, before Captain America got the drug injected into his arms and he became Captain America, he was weak. He was a nobody. Uh, Nobody would follow him as a leader and nobody would pick him to deliver the people. That was Gideon, a weakling. He self-proclaimed and he says, "Uh, excuse me, God, not sure you realize who you're picking here, but there's no way I can save Israel. What was his problem? He was looking to himself to qualify himself. He was looking for his adequacy to determine whether he could do what God was asking. Instead of listening to what the Lord was saying about him, instead of finding his confidence in what the Lord was saying, what the Lord was doing, that the Lord was with him, he said, God, look at me can't happen. His value and opinion of himself got in the way of listening to what God was saying. Some of us here, some of us listening, may have that same problem today. We may look and say, I I can't serve in that way. I can't come to church because of my track record. I can't have a relationship with Jesus right now until I clean myself up, until, until I get on track a little bit. Then I can have that relationship with Jesus. But what are we doing? We're basing our confidence on ourselves. We're, we're basing our adequacy on ourselves, our usefulness on ourselves. Instead of listening to what God says about you and me, Instead of being confident when God says, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter. Instead of being confident that God says, you are a mighty warrior. Instead of being confident that the Lord is with us. Instead we look and we say, God, I don't think you know who you're talking to. Look at who I am. God's point for Gideon is your confidence doesn't come in who you are, but on what God says about you. It's about who God is. That's where your confidence comes from. And so that's your first point this morning. Our confidence comes not from ourselves, but from God. That's what God wanted Gideon to realize. Gideon, you may be from the weakest clan, the weakest family, and you may be the weakest one. But I, the Lord, am with you. It doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend, your confidence doesn't depend on who you are and what you've done and what you've accomplished. It depends on God. And this was a lesson that God didn't want just Gideon to learn, but he wanted Israel to learn. And so God had Gideon gather an army, and then here's what he does to that army. As they're getting ready to take on 135,000 troops from the Midianites. Here's what God does to Gideon's 32,000 troops. Uh, Judges chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. 
the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying, my own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will, tell, and I will thin them out uh, for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So they're about to face 135,000 Midianite troops. You already have only 32,000 men. And God says, Gideon, you have too many men. Uh, I don't think in the history of warfare that has ever been said to somebody, you have too many men. Uh, that's generally not the, the greatest battle plan. But that's what God says to Gideon. And notice why. Why does he say he's got too many men? Because if he goes in with 32,000 men and they win, what's Israel going to say? It's by my strength and my power that we, deliver, we were delivered. And God says, I don't want them to boast uh, about their strength when it's me that gives them the victory. And so what does God do? He whittles down the army. Literally, over 99%, or over 99% of Gideon's army gets taken away. He goes from 32,000 men to 300. And God says, now I can deliver you. And how do you think Gideon felt? Terrified. Just like we would. This is an unbelievable thing that's happened. God, how are we going to deliver the people with 300 men? And that's the point. God wants them to realize he is the deliverer. He wins the victory. He wants them to realize they need him. It's his strength that delivers and brings the victory. He doesn't want them to boast in themselves but boast in the Lord. And so God says to Gideon, Gideon, if you're afraid, go down to the Midianite camp and listen to some conversations. And as he goes down, he, he comes to a tent and he overhears two men talking. And the first, man, the first man says, you won't believe this, but I had a dream. It was a weird one. I dreamt that this loaf of bread was coming down the hill and it completely wiped out the Midianite camp. And his buddy, the other soldier, said, well, that loaf of bread can be none other than Gideon. And when Gideon hears this, he's filled with confidence and he bows down and he worships the Lord. He worships God for the assurance. He worships God because God is going to bring about the victory. He worships God because it's from God that the victory is going to come. And so here's what Gideon does. 
Verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called, up, called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out, as they fled. So here's the game plan. Gideon calls the forces. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to split up into three companies, 100 each, surround the camp of the Midianites, have torches in your hand in glass jars, and a trumpet in the other. And on my call, break the glass so it makes a huge sound, and the fire's going to go everywhere. And then blow your horns and shout as loud as you can. And this happened right at the first watch of the night as the Midianite guards were changing. One group was coming to fall asleep. Another group was getting up to take a watch. And the third group was sleeping. And as all of this happens, as they they crack the glass jars, they blow the trumpets, they scream, the Midianites go into confusion. And all they see is men in the camp this fire surrounding them, all this shouting surrounding them, and it throws them into a panic, and the Midianites turn on each other and kill each other. Gideon and his army didn't lift one sword. God brought the victory. They literally sat and watched as the Midianites destroyed each other. Not one sword was lifted. God brought the victory. How could anyone boast about their own strength which caused it? If you've been with us the last four weeks, you're probably thinking, well, I've seen the rest of the book of Judges. It's pretty easy to imagine somebody boasting about this, and you're right. Look at what happens to Gideon at the end of his life. After all of this is done, here's what we're told in in Judges chapter 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Great, Gideon. Great job. And he said, I do have one request. Uh Uh-oh that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. There's a custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. 
not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camel's neck. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Pretty messed up, huh? Gideon goes from a weakling to confidence in God to boasting about a victory that he simply watched happen. This is what happened to Gideon. He says the right things. The the Israelites said, be king, rule over us. And he says, no, the Lord is your king. But then he does exactly what a king does. He says, I'll tell you what you can do for me, though. Give me a tax from the plunder you got. And so everyone donates to it. He melts it down and he shapes it into an ephod. What's an ephod? An ephod was the apron that the priest wore in the temple in Jerusalem. And he wore it when he was looking for guidance, for wisdom, and direction from the Lord. And what did he do with that? He set it up in his own town. And he, the basic message to the people was, you don't have to go to Jerusalem for God's wisdom. You can come to me and I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you direction. I'll be your leader. So even though he said, I don't want to be king, what does he do? He acts like it. He boasts as if he has the strength and it's him. And notice what Israel does. We're told that it prostitutes itself to this idol. It, they worship this ephod. And Gideon and his family are snared by it. Gideon goes so far at, in, in the next verses. He has a son and he names him Abimelech, which means my father is king. Gideon ended up a mess. But do you know what the scary thing is about Gideon? From an earthly perspective, nobody would have ever known he was a mess. He had it all. He had success. He had a great life. The people loved him. The people literally worshipped him. The people looked to him for guidance, for wisdom. He had wealth. For the, the land had 40 years of peace with him ruling. There was no earthly mess. Everything was great. But his heart, his heart was a mess. We're not sure Gideon's in heaven because the last time we were told that he worshiped God was when he was desperate and he heard the dream with only 300 men. After that, he boasts in his strength. And so here's your next point. Some of life's greatest messes come after some of life's greatest successes. And isn't that what we see here? Gideon, tremendous success. Thanks be to God. But then he takes his eyes off of his Savior God and he turns inward. And he starts boasting. And he starts saying, look at me. Look at what I've done. So to answer the question from the beginning, can our life be great? Can it be fantastic? Can we be content, filled with joy? Can we have a great life 
and still be a mess? Yes. And it becomes a mess when we start taking credit for God's victories in our life. It becomes a mess when we take our eyes off of our God, off of our Savior God, and turn inward. And we begin to say, look at what I've accomplished. Blessings are great. Success is great. And yet, the temptation with success is to start thinking we earned it and start looking to ourselves and be filled with pride and boast. Human hearts, human sinful hearts are so desperate to be our own savior that we will look for anything to grasp onto and say, look at what I've done. Look at me. And it's when we're in that position that our hearts become a mess. When we forget that every hour of every second of every day, we need God. That every victory, every success we have comes only and always from Him. We get in trouble when we start saying, it's my determination, my perseverance, my hard work, my wisdom that brought the success in my life. If that's the way we talk, we need to say, "Uh uh-oh, is there an altar in my heart that I have made for myself? Is there an ephod, so to speak, that I'm bowing down to, that I've set up in my own honor because of the success that I've brought to myself? And do you know what the saddest one of them all is? The saddest one is how often doesn't this creep into our spiritual life? We do it in our physical life, but how often don't we do it in our spiritual life? I'll give you an example. In baptism, the Bible says that in baptism, God adopts us as his children. In baptism, the Bible says that he gives us rebirth. He rebirths us, spiritually speaking. He gives us new birth. In baptism, the Bible says that God connects us in baptism to Jesus' death and resurrection. God, in our baptism, regenerates us, renews us, restores us. And yet, how often don't we talk about that day, our baptism day, as the day I dedicated my life to Christ? That's the day when I chose Christ. That's the day I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. What have I just done? Instead of boasting about what the Lord's done for me on that day, I've turned it all on me. My heart is so desperate. Our hearts are so desperate for glory, so desperate to be our own Savior That even if the Lord has 90%, we want 10%. Instead of giving him the 100% of what he's done. Where have you been successful in your life? Where would you look and say, here's my success? Look at there and ask yourself, am I stealing glory that belongs to the Lord? Am I boasting in the victory that the Lord has brought to me. 
If so, let's hit our knees in repentance. And if not, know that success is exactly when the devil attacks us. The devil absolutely loves it when you and I have success because he knows that when we have success, we're the most vulnerable. Because when we have success, it's easy to puff us up with pride, easy to get us to boast, easy to fill our hearts with nothing but boasting about what we've done. And it's then that our hearts become a mess as we take our eyes off of Jesus and find our confidence in our own strength, our own determination, our own will and perseverance. And as you scroll through the the pages of Scripture, we see this time and time again. Noah, great success, fell. Abraham, great success, fell. Moses, great success, fell. Jonah, great success, fail. You talk about Jonah, you want really interesting one. Jonah, in one preaching in 40 days, uh, or a couple days, uh, converted 120,000 people. And then he had such a huge fall because he was a racist and, and said, God, if this, is, if this is who you are, then kill me now. If you're going to forgive those types of people, kill me now. Huge success, failure. Peter, huge success, failure. This is how the devil gets us. It's when we're successful and at that moment that he fills us with pride and boasting. And so since this is, is his MO, guess who he tried this on? Jesus. If you're not familiar with Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, uh, make it your homework this week. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus has this amazing success story. He gets baptized. And as he's baptized, he comes out of the water and the heavens uh, break open and God the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. You talk about success. Imagine if you were standing here on stage right now and the heavens broke open and a voice from heaven spoke and said about you, this is my son. This is my daughter. With him, with her, I am well pleased. We'd be riding high. That was success for Jesus. And do you know what happens in the very next moment? Jesus is dragged out to the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. Where for 40 days the devil tries to get him to be filled with pride and boasting. Look, you're the son of God. God said that he's proud of you, that he loves you. With him you... With you, he is well pleased. So why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? But Jesus never did. He never stole God the Father's glory. He never boasted. He was never filled with pride. He was perfect in every way. And you know what that means? It means when he went to the cross, he took everything about your messed up heart, everything about my messed up heart. He took it for himself and he took it to the cross. And in its place, he gave you his perfect record. And as he died, he forgave you and filled you with righteousness. And now Jesus says some pretty incredible things about you. Now he looks at you and he says, go, mighty warrior. Now he looks at you and he says, the Lord is with you. Now he looks at you and says, 
You are my son. You are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Now he looks at you and he says, you're my holy one. You are at peace with me. And we look and we say, excuse me, God, like Gideon, excuse me, God, uh, how? And Jesus says, because I fought for you. Because I fought the devil. Because I died on the cross. Because I rose from the dead. You have peace. You are strong. You have confidence that your sins are forgiven. You have confidence that you are God's dearly loved child. You have confidence that death won't keep you down because I fought for you. You see, this is where our confidence comes from, from Jesus, because Jesus saves us from our messiness. Our confidence doesn't come from how strong we are, It doesn't come from how weak we are. It doesn't come from how inadequate we are or how adequate we are. It doesn't come from how qualified we are or our past experience. Our confidence comes from the Lord, from Jesus, and what he has done for us and says about us. It's Jesus that saves us from uh, self-absorption when we have success. It's Jesus who saves us from self-loathing when we fail. It's Jesus who gives us confidence. And when we keep our eyes on him, then we can boast as we boast in what the Lord has done for us. God be with you this week as we boast in the Lord and have confidence in what he's done for us and what he has said about us. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise and thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. We thank you that our confidence comes from you and what you have done for us and what you have said about us. Help us to think not less of ourselves, but think about ourselves less as we keep our eyes on you. Continue to bless us, watch over us, keep us, and continue to let us find confidence in you every single day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. It's in his name that we join to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.